you know, we we kept talking about revisiting 1999 mm-hmm. uh, because it's you know 19 or 2019, 20 years since this big year of movies, and uh, we never got around to it. And I'm I'm kind of glad we didn't because so many of the movies we talk about on this show uh, fit in, in this like fulcrum of movies that yeah. are like living in the shadow of 99. And I, I don't think this one's any exception. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's totally true. We bring up all these 99 movies on the show, and, you know, I think that has a lot to do with how old we are. I mean, that's we were all kind of coming into our own with cinema uh, in our own ways. Uh, and yay, we bring them up all the time, and we're going to bring it up a little bit this episode probably, uh, because, boy, howdy, this this is a 90s movie, if ever I've seen one not made in the 90s. Is it? Okay. Well, or a mid-aughts. It's, it's got a couple of flavors going for it. My, my point is, though, I'm, I'm glad we've uh, we've dedicated the back half of the year to doing some 2019 catch-up, and uh, it would have been easy for Dustin to pick a 2019 movie that uh, people had any, heard of. anyone had heard of. Yeah. yeah. That actually had a Wikipedia page or a Rotten Tomatoes entry. Or, yeah, any of those things. You know, but, you there know, was information about it on the internet. But anything, you, really. If, yeah, exactly. But if you don't go looking in the bargain bin... You're not going to uh, find some uh, gems uh, until a few years later. But you're not even going to find this in the bargain bin. No, you're probably not. <laughs> this, this movie's going to live on streaming forever. Oh, yeah. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Downercast. We discuss the films you'll never discuss. Period. <laughs> Done. In a film studies course. <laughs> that's that's the whole thing, yeah. This week's film is 2019's Nick Cage-headed Kill Chain, um, which is my pick of our 2019 blind spots because I had not seen it and I'd heard of it. And therefore, I where did you it. hear about this again? I, I thought I read about it in Sight and Sound. I was doing a little poking around. Maybe I read it in the Hollywood Reporter. I get both those magazines. So, <laughs> yeah. so different publications, drastically. But um, anyway, I, I read a quick little blurb about it, and I thought, oh well, that's a movie that interests me and is worth my you know further investigation. Then we were going to select uh, 2019 blind spots, and I said, hey. That would be a blind spot, and it's not something everybody would pick or assume. So I, therefore, chose the film blind, and I am not mad about it. But anyway, um, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. Still Dalton. And if you're tuning in for the very first time to this particular show, let me tell you something. Um, We do not avoid spoilers because this is an analysis show, not a review show. And thus and therefore, we do not care about that. However, we'll generally avoid, although I think despite the newness of this film... We probably don't care that much. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think anybody's going to be mad at us for spoiling uh, the events of Kill Jane. <laughs> I every time I say the title of this movie, it's a, well, you know that that is what it says on a tin. Well, it's, it's and a I tell chain you, what, of killings, boy, howdy! You can't say that they lied to you about what the movie was about. Nope, not at all, not at all. So uh, what we'll do is we'll do synopsis. It's generally spoiler free. We'll do our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will be spoiler light. We'll expand the syllabus, which is slightly more spoileristic, and then um, we get down to our analysis, which is entirely spoiler tastic. Um, there you go, dear listener. You have been warned. So let's go ahead and hear that synopsis, if you don't mind, Mister Arthur Gordon. In Ken Senzel's Kill Chain. Touted as a film in the vein of the, quote, greatest detective noir films, end quote, a series of double crosses and hits gone awry lead the viewer on a constantly shifting point of view. The story finally settles on Nicolas Cage's Aranya as he attempts to aid the woman in red as she faces off with the very bad woman and a couple of additional hitmen. Yep. Those are all the things that happens, and I don't find that being in any way spoilerific. Was that an Arthur Gordon original? Oh, you can always tell. Except for the lift of the... Touted as the uh, one of the yeah well, in the vein, which the is vein of kind of how it was sold. Noirs. Yeah, uh, <laughs> when I was trying to do research on this, uh, the only blurbs I could find about it weren't a lot of the trades 
uh, probably similar to what you read in Hollywood Reporter because it was mentioned at Con mm. um, as a film that was being picked up from you know as a Millennium film or whatever, and that was how they were selling it as a a film in the vein of the greatest detective noirs. It's definitely in the capillaries of the greatest film noirs. I think it's in the same vein as less good movies, but movies I well, like. I think it's got a little bit of a big sleep thing to it. We'll talk about it. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's just go ahead and get our reactions now. Dalton, you're reacting already, so let's hear what you have to say about your thumbs-up, thumbs-down review of Kill Chain. Kill Chain occupies this space that I, I, I'm kind of fascinated by, which is movies that are not as clever as they think they are. And I don't, I don't mean that as a dig. I really don't. Like, I... Look, we talk about a lot of big, dumb movies on this show, and I'm talking, when I say big, I mean big Hollywood movies, and Hollywood has no excuse when their movies are bad. They've got all the money in the world, and when they make a bad movie, it's their fault. When a movie kind of outside the studio system is a clunker or just even mediocre, I, look, man, I'm, I grade a little bit more sparingly, uh, and if for no other reason, then movies are damn hard to make, especially outside of the studio system when everything is on a shoestring uh and you know for whatever budget this movie had it's all up on the screen like i think this movie looks really good uh better than it has any right to better than a movie i had not heard of uh before dustin picked it that basically as far as any of us can find only exists on amazon prime this is a good movie and you know dustin uh it was fair to bring up millennium's clout like they've they've distributed some pretty good pictures so uh, it's not that surprising that Kill Chain is uh, of at least a watchable quality. But, you know, we again, we, we've we watched a lot of movies on the show from big studios. I mean, we, I'm thinking of stuff like, uh, oh, God, what's that Aaron Eckhart movie? I, Frankenstein? Yeah. Is that yes. what it was called? That movie's a turd. Right. And that's a huge movie. Like, I also love it. Big, expensive movie. I don't love it as much as I like Kill Chain. No, correct. Uh, and that's, that's really what it is. Like, it's fun to laugh at I, Frankenstein, but we didn't really appreciate it on the level it was designed for, right? I think it was designed to be a big, crowd-pleasing movie, and we spent a lot of time laughing at its expense. Th- this is a film that I, you know, I was on its, I was on its team. Every time it did something gross, and this movie does a lot of gross stuff, y'all. This movie makes a lot of gross choices that I am not behind and do not condone. But I, I don't know. Like it, it had a certain amount of charm, and that's what I mean when I say it's smarter than it thinks it is. But I bring that up as a compliment in some ways. Like it, it is trying for something. It is striving for something that looks like a damn movie. Like it's trying to do something with the form of cinema that only cinema can do. It's trying to pass around a torch narratively, uh, in in this kind of visually arresting way. Or at the at the very least, a, a visually uh, cohesive way, uh, and that works for me. Again, it's it's when film tries to say, "Well, we're kind of like novels. We're kind of like uh, like books. Let's be smarter. Let's like pass around narrative a little bit more, a little less traditionally." And uh, anytime a film is brave in that regard, good for you, man. We don't need a fucking three act structure. Get out of here with that. It. <laughs> Throw it out. Save the cat. Kill the cat. Page one. I don't care. I want something weird. And uh, sure, uh, when we watch weird things on the show, sometimes it's Mandy, and it melts your eyeballs, and you think, oh, God, why is this not the movie that makes a billion dollars? But sometimes it's Kill Chain, and you go, well, I know why this didn't make a billion dollars. I'm not mad at it. kind of wish it had a theatrical release. So, yeah, well, well, I think the most interesting conversations are going to come in uh, analysis and in expanding the syllabus, so... Look, you know, if we're trying to stay spoiler free. It's a it's a series of vignettes told in a really 
schlocky, noir-esque manner. Yeah, I'm on board. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say in reaction to Kill Chain? I have my doubts. Yeah, you uh, did. Dustin sent this our way, and then after doing research and finding there was nothing about this film out there, I was uh, even more uh, cautiously questioning what we were getting ourselves into. But uh, to Dalton's point, I, I, I do think it has a certain, certain charm to it that is engaging, if nothing else. Um, from a technical standpoint, I think it's pretty messy. I, I think the cinematography is pretty rough. Uh, I think shot composition, there's a lot of stuff that's out of frame or kind of jarred out and just looks bad. Uh, and some of the editing, there's like an editing sequence uh, reminiscent of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody uh, when Enrico Colantoni is putting together his gun and it's just jump cut, jump cut, jump cut uh, as he's doing this uh, assembly. And it's like, that's a little jarring uh, for what we're trying to do here. Um, and and after a little bit, when those credits rolled, especially, I, I was like, this is a this is the pilot for a CBS cop show that has just gone awry this is so i'm so glad you brought up the opening credits arthur because i was i I was right there with you i was like this looks so cheap and silly and i was mad at how much i liked it because yeah. it like it sold what the movie was doing enough for me that i was mad at it because you're right it is wacky yeah and it does a great job of giving you enough with nick cage right there at the beginning because cage doesn't show up till like the 40 minute mark again yeah uh, he's, he's just gone. in that little opening uh prologue bookend whatever we want to call wrap around um Inclusive. reach around um yeah. and uh I, I i think you know from a technical standpoint it's messy but this movie has two great things writing for it one is that premise that dalton talked about that that idea of this kind of passing narrative that that jumps from person to person and lives up to the title you know uh, i said off air this is the first 20 minutes of joke uh the dark knight uh extended uh because it is that that bank sequence yeah. it is one clown double crossing the other clown and then that clown carries the narrative to the next sequence uh and it feels very much like that expanded um and they do a pretty decent job of fleshing that out i think uh the other big asset is the cast i, I mean nick cage um isn't cranked to 11 he's he's Nick Cajun, but he's yeah. not at like crazy cage levels. He's not phoning it in either. No, I, I think he's very sincere. And I think that's the thing, especially in recent years, he's kind of admitted is like he only takes a project that he believes in. And I think he does believe in what he's doing here. Um, whether it's a paycheck movie or not, I think he's giving his all, you know? Yeah. Um, and then you got a guy like Enrico Colantoni, who's a great character guy. Oh, yeah. Been watching Veronica Mars this year, and he's the heart of that show. And I think he's great here. I mean, he brings so much. Um, heart to that character, this aging uh, hitman who's just like trying to get out uh, and his back's against the wall. The film really spends a lot of time uh, cashing in on the goodwill of, of his performance. You're absolutely right, Arthur. Like having his vignette up front really does the movie a lot. Of, it gains a lot of goodwill. Yeah. Uh, and even the set design, the production design, I really like. I like this yeah. the hotel. I can't remember what it's called, but the, the hotel that they're in, a very rundown. Del Franco. Yeah. Not, nobody's lived here probably in a year. It looks like no one's frequented this. He's only got two customers, and uh, which is a funny bit. Um, but I, I think the set design is great. I, and, you know, they shot this in Colombia. Um, and I think they use that locale to their, uh, to their benefit and to the strength of the movie. Um, and so it's, Pretty mixed bag, but to Dalton, you know, like Dalton said, I wasn't mad. I watched it. I had fun with it. I'd probably watch it again. Um, it's an easy watch. It's a quick ninety minutes, and yeah. there's enough there to kind of keep you going and kind of seeing where it goes. And you know, if this had a little theatrical run, I think it would have had a, a little fan base built in with it that people would be like, "Oh yeah, that's a fun, you know, movie." Uh, I had a yeah. good time with that, uh, and I think that would have been the consensus. But instead, they just buried it on Prime to yeah. no fanfare whatsoever. So that's you know an interesting thing to kind of think about as well and, and it's of the of the 
recent cage straight to video movies I've seen. This is probably one of the stronger ones outside of Mom and Dad. Um, but which I'll, I've heard great things about. Yeah, I mean that's on a level, but. Uh, compared to some of those other ones that I've watched, I watched like 12 Nick Cage movies last year. Several of those were the straight-to-video ones. And, uh, you know, this one is somewhat memorable compared to a lot of those other ones, which were pretty forgettable and bad. Um, so, yeah, you know what? I'm not mad you picked it. I, I had fun with it and glad we watched it. Yeah, Arthur, you're not wrong about, like, I know. the limits. <laughs> you rarely are. Uh, we think Jupiter Ascending is the only one that comes to mind. Uh <laughs> but yeah, I okay. mean, like the 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 sequence of the the sniper rifle. There's a shootout not long after that. That's real, and you you feel the constraints, right? You feel the constraints of how long they had to sit in the edit. Yeah. Probably how the limits on like they couldn't probably didn't have money to get coverage on a lot of stuff. Yeah, and even that uh, there's a really economical use of that car shootout and that car sequence there right yeah. after the hotel. Um, I don't think it shot well, but I think just the the way they use that space yeah. is very good. Absolutely, yeah. And that that was the thing that I kept thinking about because even in the hotel, when we get back there, there's a shootout, and also, yeah, it's edited kind of poorly, but you can tell that they don't have a lot of set, and they're making the most of it to try to stage an interesting action set piece. And I, I'm with you, Arthur. That I don't know. Every time it it does something kind of dumpy or amateurish, it does something. A little bit out of its its weight class that I'm, I'm impressed by. Yeah. Dustin, you were the picker. How did it hold up? Uh, are you mad that you made us watch this? Go on. I am not mad that I made us watch this. I am not going to like you know tout this as the greatest film of all time or anything like yeah, that. You're but, not going to pretend you found the secret hidden gem in 2019. Oh, I mean, I, I will say this. I do think we found a hidden gem in 2019. Hmm, okay. I mean, I th- I think this movie is. Very Rhinestone good. might be more accurate. Let's, let's say <laughs> Rhinestone. No, I, I, I do think we found a really, really solid film yeah. um, that if it was given a wide release that could have done some... I think this movie could have made some money. Mm-hmm. I think it would have got some word of mouth. I think it's it's that much fun. It, it is that much enjoyable. It is, um, in a weird way, I felt like I was watching John Wick in the real world a little bit. That it was, you know, John Wick's, you know, sort of constructed universe, this, you know, uh, bizarre, you know. Yeah, intricate, high, highly intricate world of crime. This cultural of assassins, yeah. right? But it's like, no, no, these guys are, you know, former government workers. They get work with sort of other government agencies, a.k.a. the CIA, the NSA, etc., and also some other paramilitary sort of little groups, and the they're all rubbing, yeah, and they're all rubbing shoulders with organized crime because obviously they are, right? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're you're absolutely right that it does kind of pre- it presents the realness of the interconnectedness of our society without the the fun of John Wick or right, the mythology right. of John the, Wick. The, the mythology, yeah, yeah. And so it felt like uh, something of a real world version of that, but you don't get that till the very end. What you get though is um, this really kind of intricate chess game that Nick Cage's character is playing, and I'm not going to you know spoil anything at this point uh, in the uh, in the vein of our faithfulness to spoilers in the, the show. But I, I do find that there's a weird way in which, unlike, say, a Philip Marlowe, Big Sleep kind of film noir film, in which you are exploring the world via a single character, Humphrey Bogart's Philip Marlowe, you are doing so by exploring the world from these shifting points of view where you're following a character and then you realize, oh, wait, no, not that character. And then another character. And not, and again, is it, is it literally a kill chain, right? A chain yes. of murders the and The titular deaths. kill chain. Right. They, I, re- they, I leaned over uh, to Giles during the movie and I said, 
That's the kill chain. Yes, of course you. Oh, I love you so much, Arthur. I'm so glad you and Giles had that conversation. <laughs> I, I find him to be a very That's astute film watcher. <laughs> but but I think what noirishness, you know, in the great sort of Raymond Chandler kind of uh, tradition tries to achieve is this way in which you are dumped into a world and you don't understand what's going on. It doesn't make any sense. I don't love the fact that it gets explained. Like there's that sort yeah. of that jo- monologuing yeah that that monologuing joker moment where yeah. you explain everything that you've been doing and why yeah. you've been doing it i don't mind there being reasons and nick cage's character giving us reasons for doing what he's doing but i i would like a little less if he was it's, just a little more the, ambiguous it's on the wrong side of overwritten yeah yeah, yeah. not on yeah. the good side of it yeah and so, I mean, I don't love that particular aspect, but everything that got me there, I was like, I was there for it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you give me Sleazy Noir, give me Bogota, give me all of those things, and, uh, you know, this just sort of um, weird interconnected world of uh, mercenaries. Yeah, I'm kind of in it for all of that. And, well, we can get into this analysis, I guess, later, but, you know, it's not the type of movie. We talked about this a lot on Focus, when we did Focus a long time mm-hmm. ago. You know, those those kind of mid-budget, 70 million type movies, we just don't get it. I mean, yeah. almost anything in the theater right now is either a blockbuster, a tentpole type movie, or it's a small, independent, Oscar bait type movie. And there's very little room for these types of essential B-movies. I, th- I think of, like, Keanu Reeves and Replicas from earlier this year, right? I mean, there's just very little of that. And a lot of that is just this kind of straight-to-video stuff. Or Netflix has done pretty yeah. big work with this, bringing in these types of movies as I, well. I mean, even... Oh God, what's the first one that comes? The Purge, which, you know, is only a, what, six-year-old franchise? Yeah. The fact that those movies... And it is only the fact that they're a franchise which gives them a little buy-in. But, like, the fact that Blumhouse is able to get those off the ground and get them a real release is shocking. Yeah. I mean, Liam Neeson's the other guy I can think of who yeah, sure. kind of built the last part of his career on this, but still it's rare. I mean, we'll yeah. see him maybe in January, February, and then we won't see him again. No. But I th- I do think the sort of budgetary scope of this kind of film is something that really does jive with my own aesthetic and my own sort of taste in films. And so I'm, I, to that extent, I'm like, you know what? This film is, it's not as good. And it's not as um, you know interesting, and there's a whole lot different about it. But it's not utterly unlike a film like Drive, even mm-hmm. you know, and even aesthetically, it's, it's sort of yeah, it's definitely to, playing that and that that score as well. Trying very to achieve drive. some of that, yeah. yeah. And uh, and again, uh, we, we, well, I, again, I made a face at you, but that's also of a piece with the same kind of things that Kill Chain is wanting to be of a piece with, right? Right, yeah. and I and I think I mean, does it? reach its aspirations does its reach exceed its grasp yeah probably so i mean i will absolutely cop to that but the fact that it exists out there i'm i'm super glad we watched it and i'm there for this kind of thing and also you know the 40 film noir thing being kind of my jam um so i was all about uh, what i was experiencing and that's sort of all i read is like in the vein of the great film noir i was like you know what kind of is but in a weird way less narratively explainable and up until the end and uh, I wasn't mad about that as an experience. So, yeah, I generally, I'm, I enjoyed, I'm glad that we picked it. So, there you go, dear listener. Our biases are generally pro. Let's expand the syllabus. So, you're going to teach a class. Yeah, I am. And you're going to use Kill Chain. I am. 
Okay, well, tell me about it, Arthur. Yeah, Arthur seems pumped. Well, uh, as I was watching this and doing some research on it, I was looking at the Millennium's list of films because I was like, what else have they done? Because, you know, they've done some videos on demand type stuff. But they've also done the Olympus Has Fallen series. They've done the uh, the Hitman's Bodyguard or whatever that movie yeah, is. Yeah, they've got some big releases. They've done some uh, uh, The Mechanic from 2011. And, and they're working with guys like Gerard Butler and Statham and... and uh, Nick Cage and, and you know giving them a place to work and I was like man this seems really familiar where have I seen this before and I was like oh yeah Canon Films so we're going to start with the documentary oh, hell yeah, uh, dude. Electric Boogaloo the wild untold story of Canon Films then we're going to do some compare and contrast I want to take Jason Statham in the mechanic and I want to look at the man who initially comprised that role Charles Bronson and we're yeah. going to do Death Wish 2 right Canon picked up the Death Wish franchise Death after Wish one two, well, nonetheless. Yeah. yeah, Death Wish 1 is Kind of a, a little bit more artsy, fartsier of a release. And it wasn't a canon film. Yeah, it's canon that picks it up and turns it into the franchise. franchise. You kind of remember it as. Yeah. yeah. Then I was like, what else is on this list? Oh, there's a horror, horror movie? Was it Leatherface? Okay, well, how about that? Canon did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. Oh, my God. So we're going to put those together. Oh, and then wow. finally we're going to round this out. And, and, you know, I think the big tentpole of their, their strengths right now, I mean, those Olympus Has Fallen movies are making a lot of money. I mean, they've made three sequels, and they all make money. They've made a lot of money. And Gerard Butler's getting work. And I was like, well, who was Cannon giving work to? And I was like, oh, yeah, Chucky Chuck. Norris. Yep. And we're going to do Missing in Action with Olympus Has Fallen. Nice. And that would be the kind of yeah through time parallel we'd, we'd do this. And I think we can talk a little bit about Millennium and, and analysis and as a studio. But, yeah, that's where I would go with it. Yeah, I, I hope you have more uh, on you ready to go about Millennium structure. Because I think the thing that's interesting about Canon is it's just these two guys who are like, no, we're yeah. going to be part of Hollywood and you're going to like it. Yep. And, uh, yeah, have you ever watched that documentary, Dustin? I've seen part of it, but not all of uh, it. Listener, if you have not got around to that, it's it's really it's good quite time. good. Yeah, yeah it's really it, fascinating. It, it really is. I mean, all this kind of democratization of cinema stuff we hoped would happen with uh, smaller digital cameras and the Internet that didn't happen. It kind of the it gets into how that did happen a little bit in the 80s with the filmmaking just being a little bit cheaper. And for the nerds out there, I got one more pairing for you. Ooh. It's Masters of the Universe nice. and Hellboy. Did uh, a Millennium do the new Hellboy? Yeah. Ooh, they took a bath I did on that not one. Know they that happened. There wow, you go. Boy. That's wild. So that would be my class. All right. Well, Dalton, tell me about your class. So when I started watching Kill Chain, I immediately thought uh, of a film that is not very good but holds a special place in my heart, and that is uh, Training Day? the Ryan Reynolds vehicle. <laughs> no, I'm just going to ride right past that. I guess I, I, I guess I'm going to say the Ryan Reynolds protagonist id uh, ensemble picture. Smoking Aces. Oh, Do you guys remember this? The voices. I haven't seen that one. You guys haven't seen this? Oh my god. Okay, so Smoking Aces is a film that I was so excited about uh, in January of '06 when it came out uh, that I wrecked my first car talking about how much I like this <laughs> stupid movie. On brand. Yeah, right? Fucking A. Uh, not a good movie. I need to clear, clarify that up front, but I was so excited by the image of. Uh, oh, what? Arthur, what's that Irish actor's name that's got the Glasgow smile? He's on uh, oh, Sons uh... of Anarchy. Tommy Flanagan. Thank you. Tommy Flanagan, early in that movie, stands up out of a wheelchair dual-wielding machine guns. Uh, and that's just an image, like, that was, it's just stood with me for my entire life. Joel Edgerton, uh, really young, is in this movie. Stacked to the gills with uh, could-have-beens, would-have-beens, and should-have-beens. Mm -hmm. uh, and a couple of has-beens, no less. This movie has got it all, and it is dumb as hell. And watching Kill Chain thinking about this uh, got me kind of was like, all right, well, what do these two movies have in common? Because they have a lot in common. Kill Chain and Smoke and Ace is both traffic in this cleverer than it thinks it is. Very uh, dominoes uh, pushing sort of narrative where you don't understand all the pieces until late in the game. 
Uh, and they are both very much kind of inspired by noir storytelling, and they are both very dumb and very violent and very gaze-heavy. Uh, and so I started thinking about uh, cinema cycles, genres, and uh, we're going to talk about film noir, but we're not going to talk about the classics. We're not even going to talk about the classic neo-noirs of the 70s. Nay, we're not even going to talk about the erotic thrillers of the 90s. Okay, well... Yeah, we're going to, because on a long enough timeline... We're scraping the bottom of the barrel, That's right, because, baby, on a long enough timeline, every genre turns into schlock, and that is the kind of the thesis statement of this class. We can't stop talking about the damn MCU and the stupid superhero movies. Hollywood has been trying to get their superheroes genre off the ground forever. They are always looking for the genre that is a guaranteed moneymaker. Sometimes it's westerns, sometimes it's noirs. And for a brief weird window in the late 90s to like the mid-aughts, it was sleazy, noir-styled, mid-budget action movies so we are going to look at sin city one and two it's much delayed sequel nice uh we are going to be looking at uh smoke and aces the aforementioned kill chain and last year's probably the last movie of its kind to be in theaters hotel artemis by drew mm-hmm. pierce and i think hotel artemis is probably yeah. kind of the pinnacle of these it's, it's definitely of that john wick piece too yeah well and it's a very different exactly it's it's very much kind of in that same sort of uh mode sure of like okay let's talk about a, a highly uh structured sort of crime society and that's but that's what all of these movies are right they're all trying to take crime as an idea and say okay well we all know now in 2010 that or whatever year you want to talk about that you're writing one of these screenplays uh, that crime is kind of nebulous and weird and hard to define and isn't as, uh, you know, uh, easily shaded as it was in the 50s. And almost always there's going to be a politician in, or somebody with uh, great power in one of these stories. Uh, but I, I think all of these are trying to be noir and then just take all of the things that noir could only hint at in the 50s and then... Uh, just splash it in the goofiest styles imaginable. And we did that in the 70s, sure. We got to the the sexy, uh, explicitly sexual, explicitly violent noirs in the 70s. But they weren't, uh, what's the word I'm looking here, uh, stylistic in any way, right? The stylism wasn't the kind of realism of noir, right? They were still beholden to, uh, sure, they had some of the surrealism that noir had, but they, they're very realistic in their depictions of violence, right? They're going for that, uh, that mode that's happening in that time period of being kind of frank with the violence. We hadn't gotten to stylized violence yet, right? We're still working. The stylization is that Arthur Penn school, right? Where the fact that there are squibs on people when they get shot is the style. And, you know, there's some slow motion cutting. But by the time we get to the, the mid-aughts, uh, we're getting things like Smoke and Aces and Sin City. It, it is this noir aesthetic that's been so important to American cinema. And it is dialed up to 11 with all of the childish impulses that noir writers like try to holster or at the very least try to make a little bit cleverer uh and it's just taking all the varnish off and letting it be as dumb 15 year old and blockbuster as it wants to be uh, and by blockbuster i mean video but not <laughs> the kind of movie right uh, and, and again I, I just i find kill chain to very much be of a piece with these and uh to arthur's point yeah we don't these don't get to theaters anymore it just doesn't happen but for this weird window uh because you know uh, sin city makes a bunch of money it made so much money they couldn't stop trying to get a second movie made uh smoke and ace is not a big hit but again it comes off of uh, a pretty big train leading up to it that is all uh taking the late 90s and all the things that were happening in filmmaking around that time and trying to 
take these kind of clever postmodern narrative twists and uh, uh, really sarcastic uh, side glances at modern life uh, and fold it into to noir and it never worked uh even in you know something like uh sin city which i still have some affection for and have revisited as an adult and don't find nearly as interesting uh it's still like i don't know there's something about just making noir as trashy and lurid and stupid as you want to make it that lets it breathe again in some ways i don't know if that makes like i like brick brick is very good and clever and is actually a good noir film that just happens to take place in a high school. That's different than what we're talking about here. We're talking about noir movies that exist in either comic book worlds, uh, in the case of Sin City, or science fiction worlds, or near-future dystopias, in the case of Hotel Artemis, or in the case of Smoke and Aces, just the coke-fueled delusions of every screenwriter and producer that have ever spent too long in a, in a meeting together. Um, yeah, I, I like this kind of big, dumb cinema sometimes, uh, especially when... You know, it's filled with actors who are interesting and either had interesting careers that led them to these moments or uh, went on to have interesting careers. Because if you look at the ensemble casts of all the films that I've named, boy, howdy, are are you uh, spoiled for choice when we're talking about talent? Uh, I'm not even going to bother throwing any of the names out there because you've got phones. You can look up who's in these movies. So that's what the class is going to be. It's uh, It's just going to be a survey of this sub 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 genre of noir that i think barely exists uh, and i'm going to try to make the case that it does nice i'm also going to sort of invent a sub genre okay and, uh for my class i'm going to do a class on the baroque noir okay which I did, is the yeah. super ornate noir okay like, i tried to tell you mine was vape noir and you hated it uh, yeah yeah <laughs> Because I, I well, I have association. Yeah. But with... uh, so we're, I'm going to go with sleaze noir. What's tell me more about baroque? Noir baroque as you is see like it. highly ornamental. So yeah. like the thing already exists, but this is the way in which we are putting lipstick on the pig, or pinning the tail on the donkey, or sort of adding additional bits. And I, okay. I, I made that last bit up. Yeah, no, I got gotcha. you. Uh, completely made up. Uh, but sort of the way in which you expand upon an existing stylistic universe, either narratively, cine- cinema, uh, in terms of cinematography, or in terms of acting. And so I want to begin with 1958's Touch of Evil, okay. um, yeah. directed by Orson Welles, starring Janet Lee and uh, Charlton Heston, who plays a Mexican national because he has a mustache. Therefore, he's now Mexican. Checks out. Um which is kind of oh, gross. Boy. But it opens with this what a time, the 50s. insane, long, long take of a car driving down the road, eventually to an explosion. This is the first scene of the film. Okay. And you then descend in this sort of labyrinthine um, interconnectedness of this border town, Mexican National Police versus um, some uh, American police bum played by a character um, by Orson Welles. And really, really kind of a fascinating film. Um, Then I want to move to 1986. Thanks, Keithan. I want to move to 1986 and Blue Velvet. Ah, nice. In which we have a different kind of uh, journey, you know, where Kyle McLaughlin's character Jeffrey is exploring this insane world of uh, just sleaze and evil. But again, very, very sort of ornamented version of a standard film noir film. And then conclude with Kill Chain, which uh, I think does have a lot of stylistic pretensions. I do think the color palette and the choices that it's making are in the the vein of other films. I mean, Drive might be a better example as as far as 
as like something that's more known. That's what made me think of Hotel Artemis and Smoke and Aces. It is kind of it's both washed out and neon. also neon. Yeah, very it's yeah, very vivid colors. But everything that's not a bright color is just looks like dog crap. <laughs> and but I mean yeah, just because it's kind of muddy and washed out. But I do think it also ornaments the sort of uh, labyrinthine style plots sure. that you find in the classic like Dashiell Hammett, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler film noir stories. And so I think narratively, uh, there's some narrative things that are very interesting as well about Blue Velvet and Touch of Evil for that matter. But I, I do feel like there would be an interesting sort of dialogue interplay between the ways in which someone is intentionally taking the form, the shape of the standing film noir and then moving that towards uh, uh, not 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 pulling it back and and sort of getting more spare with it. I'm looking at collateral for an example, yeah, or something like great that, example. which is really kind of spare use of film noir. In a weird way, I think even Brick is not Baroque in that same sense. Brick is really a very much standard... more like collateral. Yeah, that's well, that's why I brought it up as like a modern noir that is it's just just a neo noir. It's not doesn't need an extra qualifier like either of our classes. Right, it's, it's a very standard film noir. It just sort of has moved the the metatextual sort of post modern move of that just moving it to high school but i'm looking at like the usual suspects and la confidential which are these sort of um noir all over again retro noir yeah they're they're these better noirs that do kind of pave the way for these sleazy noirs that we get uh, you know 10 15 years later but they lack that baroqueness yeah they, they're not as ornamental you're sure, yeah, you're sure. absolutely they're, they they're really just sort of reskinning that in contemporary actors contemporary cinema cinema cinematographic techniques there it is but they're not doing anything really all that new or different or unusual with it but i do find something going on with a movie like kill chain and then uh, blue velvet and touch of evil that might be worthy of some conversation in maybe a broader film noir class so that's my expanded syllabus so there you go dear listener your syllabus just got much longer let's get down to analysis shall we it's business it's business time Ah, uh, yes, the music that means it's time to do the fun thing. Did you get your socks? No, I always have my socks on, Arthur. I don't ever come to record without my special socks. Yeah, I'm wearing my uh, Grateful Dead business socks. So you know, you know, man. Uh, moving right along, though. My uh, business socks are the same color as all of my socks. Black, because, I, you know, somebody might see them. I don't know what that. Uh, I don't. I don't know what that business looks like when he wears his guar socks. Though. <laughs> oh, I don't think. I think he had to throw away the socks from the guar show. Probably. Yeah, the, I uh, have not worn those socks. Yeah, since. I don't think they're going to yeah. make a comeback. Yeah, they're, they they uh, were quite stained. So let's talk about form real quick. We've we've been throwing around the word noir a lot, and uh, look, I don't. We're not going to pick up any new listeners talking about kill chain. Uh, but we, <laughs> you might. God, maybe. I hope. I hope somebody gets. I hope uh, there's a club of kill chain fans out there just on reddit yeah. somewhere and they're just aching for a podcast yeah, our, our kill chain is just obsessed with this movie and our is mad <laughs> is mad that the mainstream film press <laughs> just ignored it <laughs> let's talk about noir though right because right we, we kind of talk we, dustin's got his fake broke noir uh, baroque sorry i have my fake sleaze noir uh but let's kind of talk about dustin you're somewhat versed on this subject and arthur you are as well do you do you two want to kind of tag team talking a little bit about what where what this comes noir? from what is it it's i know let's give him let's give the listener the uh, the cliff's notes version. one could ask william park for his book what is film noir question mark. exactly i know it gets look this conversation gets out of hand fast is which, it a mode which, is it a genre which is seems it a function like a question he does not answer i think he falls yes. on the side of genre eventually 
But film noir is uh, classically maybe a cycle of films from 1941 to 1958, uh, ending with Touch of Evil, sort of the last moment of that particular cycle, in which these detective investigation stories, sometimes professionally investigated by um, private detectives or police officers, sometimes uh, amateurly investigated by just people thrown in the midst of a mystery, and they have to explore the dark underbelly of the city, highly influenced by modernism and modern cityscapes, and uh, stylistically really kind of... uh, um, commercialization of the extreme film styles of German expressionism. Mm -hmm. Um, So when it comes down to the taxonomical definition, maybe it's a genre because there are sort of a genre that I'm thinking about Humphrey Bogart's trench coat and just like the Western and the six gun revolver. So there's some of that going on. There's also a bit of style and the washed out landscapes. The Western's a good sort of comparative contrast, I think. Yeah. Here. So in the Western, you might have those washed out landscapes. Here you have those dark cityscapes and Venetian blinds and uh, those kind of things working in kind of a stylistic kind of way. A lot of shadows. Right, a lot, a lot of, of shadows. Yeah. But it's also a post priori um, nomenclature that's uh, ascribed to the films after they were made. Nobody in the 40s was setting out to make a film noir in the way that John Ford was setting out to make a Western. It was only until the French critics at Cahiers du Cinema and a couple other publications began to notice this particular style of filmmaking that it was given that name. And so what you have in the 50s is in a weird way a reaction to stuff that Francois Truffaut and Andre Bazin and others were writing about the style um, or this sort of weird cycle of films. Now, does it end in 58? Kind of. Are there post-58? Sort of. Do we have a revival in the 70s with Chinatown, these retro noirs? Yeah. Do you have this other revival in the 90s with retro noirs and then what ends up being classified as neo-noirs? Sort of. Well, and that's where I think the conversation gets really interesting, right? Because much like Westerns, uh, yes, there are important classic Westerns that you should watch, like Stagecoach, like The Searchers. But I think where Westerns gets most interesting is when we go back and say, why did we like those stupid fucking movies for so many years? And I think that's where noirs get interesting. Again, I think some of the classic noirs are more so than Westerns. The classic noirs are kind of the best. They're very watchable. The 70s ones are Good, but not as fun. They're just Chinatown. Uh, well, let's not talk about. It. Okay. We talked about it earlier. Polanski this year. sucks, but yeah, that movie's but let's, really well, like Elliot Gould's uh, uh, oh, the Long Goodbye. Thank you, the Long Goodbye. So good. It's yeah. so good, but it is boring. That's Altman, right? Yeah, it's Altman. Yeah, uh, but it's you know it's a seventies movie. It is kind of deliberately weird and laconic yeah. and and stoned in its pacing. It's kind. It's doing a very deliberate affectation of nothing makes sense anymore. Man, Watergate happened. Uh, whereas, the, you know, the 70s westerns are all just like, violence is shitty, uh, but isn't it cool to look at? And I think when we get to, you know, Blue Velvet, we get to a, even more, or Brick, or even like Hotel Artemis, when we get further along from that the first seed, when we get to these weirder branches on the tree, you get to kind of see, even with Kill Chain, you get to see kind of an interesting reaction to this, the genre that happened by accident. Mm-hmm. Which I think is more interesting than hey, even looking at something like Logan, which is just pastiche through pastiche, right? I love Logan. It's one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. I would make a case for it as one of the best movies of the decade. It's still just, you know, it's let's uh, superhero movies are westerns. Let's make a superhero movie that's a western. 
noir happened by accident so the pastiches are weirder like uh, from this year you've got under the silver lake um what's his doodles follow up to it follows yeah uh, Ooh, can't think of his name so he's got three names that's why i can never remember um but you know under the silver lake i didn't mention as being part of the sleaze noir even though it's doing a lot with the uh, the sleazy gaze that uh you get out of those 70s noirs it's trying to really kind of have a conversation with those but it's also trying to be a dark comedy so i, I think it's uh it's not in that same canon as sleaze noir if we want to try to pretend that's a real thing but again i, I think it is interesting as this very far out branch on this limb that it makes references to chinatown and the long goodbye and makes references to other older noirs and is constantly about how the male leads of most noirs are dumb idiots at best and uh, misogynists at worst. Well, it's interesting with Kill Chain as a particular point because, narratively speaking, it isn't an investigation story. Exactly. Unless it is a... you are the investigator yourself. That's what I was about to say. Unless the camera. With you, the camera, or the audience. Because you're right. We don't really – we only get more information as the film gives us information. The, the story that's unfolding is not a mystery somebody's unraveling. It's just – us figuring out why Nick Cage opened this movie with a dead body in his bar, a lady with no top on upstairs who's covered in blood, and others, these two guys who are menacing him. And you're right, there is no real mystery except finding out how we got to the start of the yeah. movie. Uh, but it, it definitely, it, it feels very much of a piece with these other films that we've been talking about, these kind of neo-neo-noirs or at the very, these bargain bin noirs. Well, it's, it's labyrinthine-ness, if I can construct a word that's a word yeah uh, the, the way in which it's like you don't know what's going on and the no. way in which it's sort of i mean what what david boardwell would talk about what withholding narration yeah um it, it it really is strongly hiding its cards up until well it shouldn't have never revealed them but yeah. it, it's hiding its cards you know most of the film and uh, that i think is definitely in the noir sort of uh, vein yeah i mean in, on a more base level i think you do have this flawed anti-hero who was our per- "Quote unquote protagonist." I mean, it's filled with him and Enrico Contoni, and yeah. yeah, and Nick Cage himself, uh, and also you have the femme fatale, and you do have the the kind of darkness to it. And I think the other thing uh, inherent to film noir is cynicism, and mm-hmm. you know, it's a genre I think or movement, if you will, built out of a cynicism mood or tone, yeah. reacting to the cultural shifts of the '30s and '40s and '50s. And I think you know that's one of those straws you'd have to kind of maybe search for. You mentioned the organization stuff, and you know all these groups getting their hands dirty just to get more hands dirty and i you know i think there may be something there and well i think you you're you're right to bring up the cynicism arthur because it's such a crucial component right and more than you know westerns which start out as much sunnier affairs noirs are always very kind of cynical and jaded and we're always a reaction to like hollywood ideas about heroism and, and villains and like clear-cut goodness i think it's part of why they fell out of favor is they got harder to make under the Hayes code I yeah. wouldn't be surprised. I even get. I don't. I don't know that. Uh, I don't know if anybody's written on that, but I wouldn't be surprised to learn that was part of it. I, I mean, I think. I mean, culturally, you know, there's a few. You, you mentioned Watergate and Nixon. You know, reacting to that, and I think Polanski's reacting to it sure. in his own personal way, uh, and you know, the police system that failed him uh, in a lot of ways. But uh, you know, I don't know. I don't want to give Polanski that pass, but I know what you're saying. I mean, I, I, in regards to Tate. Sure, yeah. And, and you're making good points about the 70s being a good time to revive noirs. Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not talking, clarify, I'm not talking about Polanski and his personal. Yeah. His, I'm talking about the Sharon Tate stuff. Sure. Yeah. Not, not, yeah. Anyway, um, just to clarify, 
but yeah, I, you know, I don't know that, you know, culturally in the 30s and 40s, you have stuff of depression, you have wars, and you have all this stuff that we're reacting to, and things aren't as cheery and chipper anymore. And yeah. I think by the 80s, you're looking for hope, and you've got the rise of the yuppie, and then you've got a guy like Lynch who's seeing the, the falsehood of the American dream, and yeah, he is looking. suburbia, yeah. Mm-hmm, and he's looking at that, and then you don't really have anything like that again. And 9-11, but then we don't really go back to that. Yeah, movie. I mean, you've got Fight Club and American Beauty and like all these 99 movies, which is why when we started uh, the, the show, I want to kind of talk about that. There are, they feel like they're borrowing from noir a little bit, right? Because it is all this, these labyrinthine narratives, uh, cynicism towards modern life, uh, anti-heroes, film fatales, all the shit that we've just talked about shows up in all of these things that I, are I definitely think, not noirs. I think you're absolutely right on. I think what the postmodernist um, novelist and screenwriter picked up um, when they sort of, you know, the, in the construction of whatever that style is, mm-hmm. I think the 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 tropes of noir were very very friendly to what they were picking up. Because I yeah. don't, I don't think Fight Club's a noir. I don't. No, that's. I, I, yeah. I don't think. Yeah, I, I could have listed more ninety nine movies right, that right. have noir touches that are definitely not well, noir. I mean, but well, I was gonna say I don't think The Matrix is a noir. No, I don't. But I do think there are ways in which all of those films from ninety nine that we're talking about, American Beauty, even, um, yeah. do lift some bits and pieces from noirish ness. I mean, the visuals alone with The Matrix, but again, then we get into like a- anime and manga and comic books all being sure. Influenced. There's other, there's, yeah. there's other visual styles that incorporate. But these as are well. all. Things that have like played mix and match with noir tropes. Like but, these are mediums that have also like their imageries that are all kind of being passed around. I mean, for mediums, you know, Blade Runner is another huge visual yeah. influence, which is also heavily inspired by the right. Noir. And I, I think one of the things about postmodernism itself is its sort of incredulity. There you go. At I keep doing that today. Yeah. At modernism's sort of optimism, this sort yeah, of sure, hope in sure. which the technocratic, technological um, advances of society are going to eventually get us somewhere. And then, of course, World War One happens, which is a, you know, kind of a blow. And then World War Two happens, which is a death knell to it. And no, so, it's not. We're back there already. We got technocrats promising to save a modern life right now, dude. But, we but, just do. We're doing it again in a different way. But we, I don't. I don't feel like we're as confident in them. I think we do look at them. Oh. We look askance at Elon Musk. Yeah, but I think people looked askance at the robber barons of the teens, man, in the Gilded Age, right? Well, like, sure. And just not enough people, or not enough people with the means to do anything. But I do think uh, the cynicalism of the uh, noir is what's picked up and what yeah, they sort sure. of attach themselves to. Well, the, and I think this brings us back to Kill Chain, though, because I think you're right, though, that uh, I, not Kill Chain specifically, just like the films of 2019 or really the last probably five years, even uh, any of the films of the last teens. I think we're starting to see more cynicism across indie film, Hollywood filmmaking, like whatever, uh, national, uh, you know, American or international. I think we are starting to see an uptick in cynicism in our, our stories. And, I, you know, I Look, you don't need me to tell you why, uh, but uh, hopefully, you know, maybe Kill Chain uh, <laughs> is a sign of things to come. Fingers crossed of more weird noir uh, retreads. Well, I think it does suggest part of the why, and and the part of the why is, is a similar reason why as to why Humphrey Bogart uh, in as a Philip Marlowe character, mm-hmm. or even Humphrey Bogart as Sam, um, not Sam Spade in uh, Maltese Falcon, that's what I was thinking of, but Humphrey Bogart as Rick in uh, Casablanca in the near noir that is Casablanca, that in the wake of wartime experience, how possible is it for a man who has endured that experience to remain a good man? 
And of course, you know, there's a certain optimism to uh, 1941's Casablanca, but there's definitely not the same kind of optimism in The Big Sleep or The Maltese Falcon. And it does seem like what part of what is being suggested by the narrative of Kill Chain is that Nick Cage is an agent of the state and sometimes state-adjacent agencies. Although it seems like... Well, he's retired at this point. But it seems like he's an agent of a, of a state agency. Well, he straight up says, yeah, yeah, he used to be... He doesn't. He was a trucker, but the guy that taught him was a, a ranger. And mm-hmm. yeah, they definitely worked for the United States government. Yeah. And, in no uncertain terms. And that in the contemporary moment of the war on terror and of maybe the drug war because we're in South America. The proliferation of private military companies, which get name-checked in one of Cage's monologues. Right. That... If a man wants to sort of save his soul, he has to sort of take on the weapons and uh, the wickedness. I mean, Nick Cage's Ariana character is not a good guy. No, Aranya's a bad dude. Yeah. He's a, he's, he makes it clear. He is, he, is, he is doing murders tonight is what we're seeing for the film. Yeah. and But the reason for that is that he wants to be a good man. He wants to sort of recompense some kind of justice in the world. And that... The, the current circumstances and situations of negotiating life preclude – because to be a good moral human being, to not commit murders, to sort of step back from the rest of society, to sort of step back into a life as an innkeeper. Yeah, sure. Is, is morally impossible, but the only way to be moral is to be utterly immoral. And I find that sort of weird negotiation sure. to be really fascinating. Well, and uh... – it's interesting because, right, this this kind of character is not, uh, let's see, Will Money from Unforgiven, right? I mean, the idea of this uh, violent man with a violent past who's trying to make good is uh, is not an unfamiliar trope. But Cage's Aranya is kind of a weird variation on that, right? He's almost the sort of, he's looking for one last go, right? He's a good, he wants to make good and he thinks the only way that, to, he can make good is to just be a violent person who is in a position where somebody might need the help of a violent person. And that kind of seems to be his penance as being this innkeeper, right? Is he's just waiting for somebody to need his help. And that, but that's a character that I think has showed up before uh, in cinema, right? This uh, Well, I mean, he's not waiting for somebody to need his help, though. He's set the whole situation up. He's orchestrated this whole thing. He's orchestrated the whole thing. The fact that he's helping the girl true, out is true. just sort of incidental. She might have died. And that's true. Like, and he said, I would have regretted that. That's true. But he's but sort of like copping to the... Casualty of, War, yeah. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I would have hated for you to die, but, you know, if you had... I just really like Nick Cage. You're right. The the, the film does not support that read on that character no. at all. You're absolutely yeah, right. He, yeah, I mean, he's... he's that was a, a long shot. Uh, there is a moment, though, uh, now yeah. that we're in spoiler territory, um, so the initial assassin, the aging assassin's daughter, he does take the phone, mm-hmm. and the last scene, which sort of begs for a weird sequel, which is never going to happen. No, there's no way. in the history of no. ever... Well, no. Uh, you know what? I'd watch it. Oh yeah. There's no. <laughs> oh, there's no way I wouldn't watch the continued adventures of Aranya. Yeah. 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 No, no. Absolutely. Absolutely. No doubt. What, you think I am uh, an idiot? Yeah. But uh, that that he's now created a situation because there is a dangling end in his sort of very very intricately laid sure. plan, which is the guy on the phone that he used to assassinate. Yeah, yeah. To assassinate the first gunman. Well, this brings us to a fun point. Uh, let's stick with form, though. Let's talk about vignettes briefly. We've spent a lot of time on noir and noir heroes. Uh, does this film work better because it's vignettes? You know, we've talked a lot about uh, th- this uh, labyrinthine nature that noirs have and how 
so many of these later noirs have ensemble casts, right? Mm-hmm. They might have a protagonist, and sometimes a protagonist might actually have less screen time than some of the other characters. Uh, and that's, I don't think that's an uncommon thing in these sort of stories, especially, you know, near noirs and neo noirs. And the further out you get from the originals, you get more of these. Uh, but there, you know, there's plenty of movies that are told through vignettes, be them ensemble casts or not. I guess the question here is does the vignette nature, which seems probably to be the place where the screenplay for Kill Chain starts, right? Is the idea of a narrative that's constantly being handed off to the person that just killed the character you were following prior. Uh, what, what do we think about that? Is it, uh, does the film need it too much? Does the film fall apart without this kind of contrivance? Do we care that it might be a cheap trick? I, I don't know how to conceive of the film otherwise. Without, I mean, that's the yeah, exactly. Point. Like, I mean, I mean clearly, the gimmick. Right? I think yeah. the film was reverse engineer, I mean, reverse like engineered from that. Does memento work if it's straightforward? Sure, and I, I guess I rather the better way to phrase it then is do uh, do. I don't think it over relies on it. Yeah, I think it plays it the exact amount it needs to be okay. to get us yeah, back I, to I mean, where we need to go. The other version of this is a Liam Neeson taken film. Yeah, yeah right. Just, I mean, yeah. which would work. But yeah, it's it is the most interesting thing about the film. Sure. Right. I mean, it gives us more Nick Cage because he's going to be showing up to all these people's rooms in the other version of this movie. And that's yeah, the the other I guess the other version of this movie does look a little bit more like Hotel Artemis, which uh, again, good movie. Nobody saw it. You should check it out. Uh, I'm going to keep bringing it up because nobody watched it. But I think the kind of spectatorship it constructs is you don't know what you're watching. You don't know what you're following. Yeah, and that's fun. That's a ton of fun. And I do think the opening with Cage, sort of where we end up, Mm -hmm. is helpful. And then to to run it backwards and to sort of know, again, that that initial— We're going somewhere. We're Mm -hmm. going somewhere. And we're sort of starting where we're ending by, you know, clearly um, our our assassin duel— is going to be in the, in the Hotel Franco. Yeah. Like, there, there's a way in which the dots are sort of connected, but then you pick up with the police officers that assassinate the assassin, and then they assassinate each other, and then uh, one of them's wounded and meets the woman, and the woman then is attacked, and then she has to escape, and this weird engagement. Yeah, this is the where the kill driver. chain kind of falls apart, right? Well, I mean, so he's killed. Yeah. He's killed, and it, the, the situation in which he's killed is because I think he's been tipped off by Aranya, so yes, but uh, then we follow until we get back to Aranya, the same character, right? Who, who goes through probably like another vignette and a half, right? Uh, without uh, her boyfriend who was on True Blood. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and, yeah. and, and the yeah. assassination of Oso via poison. I, I, but I think, I think there's enough suspense in those moments because you really. I mean, I remembered that there was a dead body at the table, mm-hmm. but I'd kind of forgotten it was Oso. That's fun. And so, I mean, I like, so who and what and how, but once he shows back up at the bar at the, well, the bar of the hotel, I'm like, oh yeah, you're going to die. How are you dead at this table? And there's a way in which that constructs suspense. It's really good. And knowing that, uh, the woman, uh, in the hoodie is going to eventually be the woman in red, Mm -hmm. that there's a way in which you want to sort of see how it's going. So it creates a spectrum. Spectatorship that I think is really pleasurable. Well, that's actually as it unfolds. brings me to uh, I think one of my favorite vignettes, and that, that was one of the next things I want to talk about. Was do you have any favorite vignettes, and do we feel Cole like Tony. oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes same, but I mean, I, I think the majority of the film's heart is right there. You're absolutely right, and I, I think outside, I mean, I think will. Cage is really interesting, but I think Colin Tony is just on another level. Talking to his daughter, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of heart. There's a lot of just weariness there, and a lot of 
just tired. He doesn't want to do this anymore. And it is cool that the film comes back to him. Yeah, in the last, I, I do like that. Yeah, payback. yeah, I was, I, I had fun with that. For me, the one that really surprised me, and I think it's because, excuse me, at, at this point in the film, you know, we, we've kind of been uh, shepherded into what's going on well enough. But when uh, Annabella Acosta, who plays the woman in red, is still the woman in the the hoodie. Uh, mm-hmm. And she jacks this dude's van, and you know, then changes into yeah. her, her red yeah. dress. I love that sequence. I do too, because you have again, we've got two characters, and both of whom we are uncertain about how much more of this narrative they're going to be in, and how important they are. We've kind of realized, you know, if we've been paying attention, we know, okay, Annabella Costa was at the opening of this movie. That's definitely the lady from the start of this, right? Uh, but it's very fun because we've continued to pass off the torch of whose story this is so many times that uh, by the time you get to that van, your equilibrium's all thrown off. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it's a fun kind of terse uh, but friendly exchange, which is one of my favorite things about noirs is when people flirt with each other but can't trust each other. You can watch but don't wreck the car. Yeah, like they, he's afraid she's going to kill him. She's afraid he's going to narc her out. Like it's a very fun exchange. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, the vignettes in this film, uh, there, there's always going to be, anytime you structure your story, whether it's like an anthology film or a vignette film, some of them are going to be weaker than others, but I feel like there's pretty strong consistency throughout here. And that I that agree. was what I meant, I guess, was, did you feel like it hurt, was really more of a, are there any vignettes that just slog for you too hard? No, I don't think so. Me neither, yeah. I, I think they're all pretty fun. Which race is a different, oh, go ahead, Arthur. I was going to say, probably the, 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 the police van thing. Really? I like the, I like, yeah, I just, yeah. yeah that's fair. It goes on a little longer than it well, needs to. Well, they're like to. police douchebags and you don't yeah, care about them. I don't really care about them. Yeah. yeah, well, and it takes a while. They, they, the three of them yell at each other for a while yeah. before you figure out where the on. scene's going. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. I, I had fun with where that ended up, but you're right. Yeah. It is kind of a, a weird one. Dustin, you, you had a thought? Well, my thought was not necessarily the vignettes, but the sort of out of time vignette where Nick Cage gets to tell his story mm. or Anya gets to tell his story. Is the film better without it, with the truncated version of it? To what extent do we need to know the motivation of the sex trade stuff and the revenge story and and why he has put all these particular players on the board, so to speak, so that he can you know set up this kill chain in which they all kill each other and he has to kill the last ones? Um, do we need those explanations? I think we need some sort of justification for him like being Doing the this. spider and putting yeah, together sure. the web. But is it too much? Because I, I really was sad that I knew, but maybe just because yeah. I didn't like the explanation. I'm not sure what it is. I like the turn of that scene, uh, which I I'd kind of, you know, the film doesn't hide from you, right? It yeah. makes it pretty clear that he's he's trying to buy time for yeah. backup. Um, but I, I, yeah, I like the turn of that scene, these two hitmen uh, not knowing uh, that this situation, again, one of them knowing that, you need to let stop this guy from talking. We need to just kill this guy and get out of here. The other guy's too curious. It's a fun scene. I agree that maybe we don't need to know every single we Detail. get we get yeah. Sherlocked about it real hard, and it's just like man, that's not really the the house you built. It uh, doesn't feel of a piece with the rest of the movie. Maybe I agree. I think a truncated version of it would you know streamline it a little bit, but it's just, it does feel overinflated to a yeah. point. So explanation, but less. I mean, less is more. I right? think that said, though, and again, it's schlocky in its tragedy. And this is part of, you know, I kept using terms like this, like smarter than it thinks it is schlocky. The the, the trafficked children being burned alive is just like, good 
God. I mean, it's terribly distressing. Yeah. Yeah, well, but yeah. It's like, this is not, you were never really here. This is not a sad meditation yeah. on trauma. Like, I don't know that we need to go that far. I don't need that we need this many explanations. But Cage sells the shit out of it. And I think yeah. giving us that one-on-one, -on -one, like, emotional time with Aranya is important to the last 30 minutes of the movie. I think it changes his character into an interesting way because he's establishing himself as this very, and I think of the Joker a lot uh, from The Dark Knight, as this kind of ambiguous figure. He he has a different backstory anytime somebody asks about the hotel. Yeah, what he sold I like that. that. Yeah. And, he, and, and I think without that story, he gets to become a much more ambiguous Aranya. And Aranya is the spider, right? Yeah. And he's you know weaving this web. And I, I think having a much more ambiguous character who we don't know if he is good, if he's bad, if he's mm. crazy. You know, we don't know... The justification, I think, is much more interesting with that character. But I think what we're left with in giving us that backstory, because he is, to Dalton's point earlier, he is a man atoning for these sins in the way he knows how through violence. And then picking up the phone with the assumption this is just going to become a Taken movie uh, in the next you know, entry. And I think painting him a little too good might hurt that character a bit. Well, what, what, if, what if he told the story? I, mean, I don't mean to interrupt. No, you're okay. But what if they told the story in which uh, he's got his conversation with a very bad woman in Oso, and he gives some of his reasons, and then they're different when he gives it to the oh, two guys. And then they're that's different fun. when he explains it to the lady in red. Yeah, yeah I think that's fun. Well, it, to, to Arthur's point, though, yeah, it, it re-characterizes Aranya so much that, yeah, by the time, between watching this movie and sitting down, I, I had rewritten the character in my head to be this version that I liked. I was like, oh, that's right. Yeah, duh. He started the diamond heist to begin with. You guys had to remind me that he's the architect of this movie uh, because he's so sweet, because he gets to do like a good little Nicolas Cage, like angry cry, which, you know, I love. I love that. Yeah, I love it. And again, he gets such a sympathetic backstory that it does kind of absolve him of this bad man he says, oh, you know, when he when he tells you I was just like you guys, you kind of forget what being just like these two schmucks would have meant for his life after yeah. this story. Yeah, I would love for it to be a story in which one version of I have done terrible things and I'm paying my penance or you guys did terrible things and I'm making you pay as an avenging angel or you know what? I'm just being vindictive, and I'm trying to get even. And get paid. And get paid. Yeah. And, I, I mean, you know, I'm owed this diamond money. I mean, I, I like all the motivations, and that's a much more complex and ambiguous character, and I, I, would, I, would, I would prefer it. Yeah, I think it would be better. Uh, I think the film is smart to not position him and the woman in red as actual love interests and more just... Yeah. Uh, they uh, pretend to be. Though, yeah, well, they're, but allies of uh, convenience and, yeah, sexual partners of convenience to, like, firm up the alliance. Yeah. And, again, this is not an uncommon noir trope, right? The maybe a femme fatale that gets the bruiser on her side by, uh, you know, being like, well, let's marry Astrid and Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> Maltese it, Falcon, it's, yeah. It's uh, Mickey Rourke and uh, Jamie King and uh, Sin City. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's yeah, I can't think of those characters. Marv and, yeah, I can't remember. I don't know. No, it's Todd. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie. But again, it's it's a common archetype, and I think we get to have fun here, as we do throughout the movie, with a lot of fun archetypes. And I think that's that's where this film is really having its fun, is using these vignettes to string together like little short films about different noir archetypes, right? Mm -hmm. Crooked cops and uh, hitmen who want to make good. And you can, look, we only get like four versions of a character in this movie, but ah, I think they're all fun. They're all well acted. We talked a little off air about the the casting in this film, and. Yeah, the casting director on this film deserves a round of applause because there's a lot of uh, TV actors in this movie that you kind of recognize, some some names you've never seen before. Yeah. 
And everybody in this movie puts in some damn good work. I'm yeah. I'm constantly shocked. Uh, I I want to go ahead and pivot back to how grim dark this film gets uh, with you know barbecued children and sex workers. Um, a lot of murdered sex workers in this film, y'all. A lot of murdered sex workers. Eh. <sighs> look, this is going to be a brief detour because there's only so much here to talk about other than it's bad. It is bad. And a an more interesting movie doesn't do it. But... Well, no, you know what, though? I think in a weird way this movie gets a pass for my mind because it's it's dealing with the incidentalness of their lives yeah. in a way that I think is authentic to reality. Yeah. You know, which is – sure. Yeah, I, I don't I know. Light shot, I mean, I think we feel genuine sympathy for the first uh, sex worker who stabbed in the throat. It sucks. Yeah, she's yeah, yeah. she's an interesting character, and the the older woman that she's kind of partnered with bump cigarettes. And, yeah, the, yeah, her and Cage get to have this really kind of fun exchange, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's what it is. All of even these very tertiary characters in this film are well acted enough. Uh, and well written enough that uh, a loss of them, either through just violence or a loss of them because the film's not interested in them anymore, uh, bums me out. And maybe that's what it is, right? The fact that uh, the, the woman who gets murdered's uh, older partner who's been around the block is like, ah, she probably went home. I don't believe that. I don't believe this woman who's like, you know, in her mid 40s if she's a day, who's, you know, been a sex worker for who knows how long, is just going to think her bud's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Come on. Yeah. Outside of the Hotel Del Franco? No. No chance. And I guess maybe that's what it is, right? It forces this character who's fairly well written to act dumb. And then, yeah, we just, you know, yeah, we, we get this lady takes her top off and is dead within the next five minutes of the movie. Look, it's not, I'm not surprised at all. I'm right. not even like, I knew as soon as she took her top off, the movie was going to murder her. Uh, so I wasn't surprised, just disappointed, I guess. And you're right. I think there is something to, you know, if you make a crime film, you got to embrace the fact that everybody in this world's up to no good Mm -hmm. and some of those people are going to be more altruistic than others but a lot of them are not going to care when bad things happen to other people and i think you're right uh, that that is you know a worthwhile endeavor to to try and be uh to have some realism in that regard but you look i guess you know maybe take another pass of the screenplay remember this locky schlocky movie you're writing in the yeah, look, it's 2019, y'all. Just make better movies, I guess. I guess the question is, is Lady in Red a sex worker also? No, I don't think so. I don't think Wait, so. Wait, actually, no, I think she is. I, I think it was. says she is, yeah. Is she? Yeah, it, it does straight up say that she is, actually, I think, at one point. And so, That's I mean, her, how her and the cop got to there, know there's each other. A, there's a moment of agency there. Okay, and, and, and all right. You have you know a character what? who is perhaps dumb, perhaps wishfully thinking. Kills her, and then her w- pimp, yeah, the, the very bad woman. Yeah. So okay, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I I, I think it's okay. it, it's co- there's some complexity there. Sure, uh, you're right. I shouldn't write off too much. I guess. And again, maybe again, the the complexity of this very tertiary character who just disappears out of convenience to plotting. That's a bummer. I guess that's really what it what it that was what made it stick in my craw a little bit more. So I just want to touch on it. Well, it's a good way for you to hate the uh, second gunman, and it's a good sure. way for you sure. to um, sort of again. Give a layer of not too much likability to our first gunman because our first gunman is utterly using her, yeah, and putting her in a place of danger. And he's a lot more likable until that happens, though he does not intend for her to be killed. You know, he, he knows. He knows that there's a very strong there's possibility. a strong chance that she might be, and yeah. he's like, well, whatever. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah he's I, being I, careless with other people's lives. You're right, and and then, then the way in which those sure. particular you know demographic of human beings do have a lesser you know 
value. Yeah, well, and when all the the seeds and ideas are revealed, like when you know the the machinations are revealed to us, learning that he stood by uh, while these children were murdered. Yeah, okay, we, we we find out that not only did he do this one bad thing that we saw, he did a much worse thing that we didn't see. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I, it, fair. We can't. Nobody in this film can be too good. And sense of inaction are you know or omission to sort of put a Protestant slant on it are, yeah. are, are very strong you know in the film as well yeah. The assumption of corruption uh, uh, on part of local law enforcement because again we, we know that the film was shot in South in Colombia. Uh, the film doesn't say where it is but it, I, it, it seems like, like South America. Uh, did it? Oh, I don't know what Bogota looked like off the top of my head. It looked like South America. My uncle worked there. No, no kidding. I don't want to know what doing. Uh, don't care to know. Uh, moving right along, though. <laughs> wow, you really dropped a bomb on me. I forgot what I was going to say. Sorry, buddy. Oh, God. Uh, oh, law enforcement in South America. Yeah, the assumption that the local law enforcement's corrupt and is working with equally corrupt uh, U.S. federal law enforcement. Good call. Yeah, yeah. That's just nice. Checks out. I mean, that's yeah. the world of crime, man. Like, crime doesn't get to continue to exist uh, just for no reason. It is an interconnected web of handshakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciate that about this movie. I do, too. Any other uh, final thoughts on uh, the movie Kill Chain starring Nick Cage? Uh, man, yeah, I think we got as far as we're going to get on this horse. Uh, well, you know, I think we got some distance, though. And uh, You can learn as yeah. much from a bad movie or an in-between yeah. as you can from a good movie, to quote um, John Paris Springer. Um, <laughs> so there you go uh, with that. Uh, so let's render a verdict, shelf or trash, with Kill Jane. Arthur, go. I am going to lightly toss it in the trash, but it's going to land behind the trash can, and I'm going to walk by it every day and be like, I need to pick that up. But I never did. Oh, okay. It's, a, it's, a, it's mm. its own little family tragedy all by itself. Well, what do you say, Dalton? Uh, it's going to get thrown away in a box that I intend to take to Goodwill and then keep forgetting to take to Goodwill and then eventually go, what the hell's in this box? And I open it up and I find Kill Chain and go, ah, shit, that. I think I would watch this yeah. again. So, yeah, look, it's, it's not essential viewing. You can skip this one. But also, I don't know, if you're bored and it's Saturday morning and you're strolling through Amazon, you go, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember hearing good trash talk about this dumb movie. Yeah, put it on. It's all right. Very good, very good. I'm going to live my entire life without buying this in physical media. Yeah, sure. However, I'm still going to say shelf. I, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to come back to this movie. Like, I have people in my life right now that I'm like, you know what? Let's watch this. All right, Arthur. It is currently, as we record this, 8.30 on November 18th, 2019. I will touch base with you, Arthur Gordon, in a couple of years and see if you've heard Dustin mention Kill Chain. Again. Again. All right, fair enough. And then we will, uh, if neither of us have heard it come up from you, we'll ask you directly in a couple of years if you've seen it again. I, 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 I will testify accordingly, solemnly sworn. I will not forget this. All right. So, hey, say social media He things. did. Uh, we're on social media. Okay, I don't know. I'm good. not well anymore. I'm not anymore. The show still is. You can find, well, kind of, I'll check it every once in a while. Uh, the show is at good underscore trash on Twitter. Uh, that's just not, not just this podcast. That is all of good trash media, which, you know, is just this in the praise down right now. But, and Twilight. Uh, oh, and Twilight, which is still in the same feed as ours, so easier I to I was find. on a guest show with Darn, those guys. They were so nice. Hey, do you guys want to do this part? I like them so much. I mean, you do take our jobs all the time. That's so. fair. Arthur, you want to you okay. go ahead? All right. Uh, so, yeah, of course, if you have not noticed, there is a bonus show going on in your Good Trash feed right now. That is Twilight from uh, Aaron DeMoss and Kirsten Thurkelson. Uh, just really saying some smart shits about uh, the social event 
uh, of a decade, uh, the cultural moment that was Twilight. Uh, I'm going to watch him now. And Dustin is featured on the second episode, talking a little bit about vampire lore, since Dustin knows those things, having been one for a while. Uh, yeah, it's a good show. Uh, and again, if you want to know everything we're doing, uh, at good underscore trash to stay up to date and, you know, news things we stumble across that we think are interesting. Uh, you can head over to the website, goodtrashmedia.com to see the posts there. You can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM if you want to help us keep the lights on. And, uh, oh yeah, if you got long form feedback, send it to goodtrashgenrecast uh, at gmail.com. That's it. That's all the social medias. I'm done. Very cool. Well, you're not quite done. Uh-oh. Because it's your turn. Well, I had a, I had some options on the table, uh, but since Dustin made us watch a movie nobody's ever heard of, I said, well, I can't pick a streaming movie. I have to pick something that got a proper theatrical release. It only felt appropriate. Uh, so I went through, and uh, I did want to try to find something that got very underseen uh, and remembered that Joe Cornish had a movie come out this year. That's right. The guy that directed Attack the Block. You guys remember how good Attack the Block was from 2010? Nope. Bring it on. It was great. Attack the Block. It was fantastic. Nick Frost showed up. It launched John Boyega's career. Uh, the hot Doctor Who was in it. The, the hot lady one, not one of the hot dude ones. The Jodie hot, Whittaker. Yeah, Jodie Whittaker. I, I'm bad at I don't know all the names. I don't follow Doctor Who. Jodie Whittaker's very good at uh, She's in. Uh, she was in uh, Broadchurch. Oh, that makes sense why, why you know her off the dome. Uh, my point is Attack the Block is very good, and that director finally had a new movie come out this year, The Kid Who Would Be King, a, uh, a child retelling of Arthurian myth. That's the name of the movie? The Kid Will Be King, yes. Never heard of it. Okay. Uh, it came out early 2019. Nobody saw it. Uh, it did pretty good numbers in the UK where it had it. I think it's technically a 2018 release in the UK. Probably. I'll double check dates. It's pretty critical. I mean, critically successful. Everybody but... that saw it liked it. Yeah. Everybody that saw it liked it. Just nobody got out Bad for trailers. It. Bad trailers. Uh, I, I've heard a lot of uh, really great things about this. I've heard it makes some very interesting choices. Uh, about how it wants to uh, kick flip over Arthurian myth because it's a bunch of uh, unruly modern 12-year-olds, which Can't I confirm. love. Yeah, I'm excited about this movie. We haven't done a coming-of-age movie. We put that genre on the shelf for a while after a marathon last year. So we got fantasy, we got kids. We don't do any of this kind of yeah, stuff very often. This is all kinds yeah, of Yeah, this is way out of our wheelhouse. Uh, so I decided uh, this would be a good pick. Uh, something a little different, but still very 2019, still very good trash. I'm there for it. Very cool. All right, that'll be The Kid Who Would Be King. Is that the actual title? Am I getting it wrong? Uh, I'll double check. Let's, yeah, let's, I don't know. Yeah, I know Dustin doesn't know. I guess we should double check that I've got all of my uh, uh, prepositions right in case somebody wants to see it. It is The Kid Who Would Be King. All right. Uh, so that's happening next week. All right, there I'm, you go, dear I'm listener. excited. The Kid Who Would Be King. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not I'm not afraid.